Let's, let's fast forward a thousand years then, shall we? Which seems remarkable because Ignatius, of course, seems like a world away. He is a world away from us. He's 16th century, but he's still a thousand years later than Benedict. And by the time we get to Ignatius of Loyola, and I know that there will be people in the room who are very familiar with Ignatius, who may have done the, um, the spiritual exercises, who may have been on the, the, the super-duper long 30-day retreats. So if you are one such person, feel free to chip in. Um, Ignatius, of course, came after a thousand years, and so by then the whole monastic world, Christian spirituality, had gone through changes and convulsions, and new orders coming out, and new waves of, of, of spiritual responses to God. Now, Ignatius, I find a particularly interesting character, because what he has left us Although he's left us the Society of Jesus, which, of course, is a big institution, and in one sense you could say another monolithic institution, like the early monastic institutions, he also left us with something which is very personal, very imaginative, very much to do with discernment, very embodied, and you could say it, it's, it really gets into the guts of what it means to be a creature of God, the, the Ignatian way. And he really is a fascinating man. He, again, was from a fairly prosperous family. Uh, I mean, he spent time at uh, the Basque court when he was a young man uh, in the 16th century. And he, of course, was around at the time when the Reformation was in full swing. Again, there was a lot going on in religious terms. Luther was active. Calvin was alive, but not active yet. Um, things were going on in England or about to kick off in England. Um, so this is a very interesting time when it comes to the religious atmosphere. Ignatius has left us the spiritual exercises, which are not a good read, as in they're not a ripping read, actually you're supposed to do them rather than read them, but he's left us his own diaries, um, he's left loads of letters, so we know an awful lot more about him than we do about Benedict, and we can read stuff about him, but it helps to do the exercises rather than just read about them. Very interesting man. By his own admission, he was very loose. He was a, a dissipated character. He enjoyed nothing more than nightly daring do. <laughs> he, he liked to fantasize about ladies and about doing things of, you know, honorable knightly things. He was a man of his age. And he, he kind of fancied himself, really, basically. And when he reflected on his earlier life later on, he said, oh, I was, a bit, I was a bit of a lad. That's his response. And he's not very proud of himself. Um, he says about himself things like he was affected and extravagant. He was consumed with the desire of winning glory. But there was a turning point for him, which came in 1521. And at the Battle of Pamplona, something really horrendous happened, which is he got mashed in the legs by a cannonball. And this cannonball went between his legs. And it mashed up one of his calves completely and left the other one in a, in a really bad, bad state. Now, obviously, obviously he survived, but it was a very long recovery process. During the recovery, 
He went through some very ghastly things. He had his leg reset. And, and this, is, I mean, this is 16th century, so we are talking before all the things which make these sorts of things not just bearable, but survivable normally. He deliberately had his leg rebroken at one point because he thought it didn't look very nice, it all looked a bit ugly. So can you imagine in those days having your leg deliberately broken and reset? So he went through some really, really ghastly things. But whilst he was going through all this ghastliness, he um, was healing in a place where there were no novels, for want of a better word, no penny dreadfuls, no um, bits of manuscript which told wonderful stories about knightly errantry and daring do. And he used to like to read that kind of stuff. Um, so what he did in the end was he said, can I have some reading material, please? And he was given some reading material. He was given The Lies of Saints, and he was given something called the Vita Christi, which was a book about the life of Christ, as you would imagine. And what he did was he read these and he imagined his way around them again. Just as he'd imagined his way around all these, this other reading material which he'd enjoyed, he imagined his way through the Vita Christi and the Lives of Saints, helped by the fact that the Vita Christi was written in such a way that you were invited to imagine your way into it. Now, if anybody knows stuff about Ignatius, you will recognise immediately that this, that being imagined into a gospel story is one of Ignatius's um, trademarks. He got it from the Vita Christi, where this text from, I think for, he was um, a, a Saxon theologian from a few, or from Saxony, I mean, from a few centuries before, he had this method where he said, imagine, come into, be in the manger, be in the stable, be with the animals, be with the mother of Jesus as she sees him on the cross. And so he was invited into these stories. And then he discovered the most extraordinary thing, which was when he imagined his way into the stories about God and Jesus and the saints, after however long, he still felt sustained by participating in these stories. And he compared it with when he imagined his way into stories about knights and ladies and so on. And that gave him like an initial sugar rush and then it dissipated. And this was the beginning of what we are left with today. One of the, the great insights really, which is that how we respond to what we think about gives us a huge bit of information about what nourishes us. And even if we really love something and it makes us happy and we feel really excited, if it ebbs away in a very short space of time, then its value to us in terms of nurturing us is fairly limited. If, on the other hand, we have a good old bowl of porridge and we eat it and chew on it and it sustains us for longer, it tells us that this has a really positive effect for us. Now, again, this is one of those things which might make complete sense to us, but this was new, or at least new in the sense that this was a man who realised it and decided to write about it. So he left us with these early ideas at this point, which then morphed into the spiritual exercises, these early ideas of how we are spiritually nourished. We allow ourselves to feed 
on Christ. We allow ourselves to feed on God and we will find ourselves nourished. We feed on other things and we're not really nourished. We might feel happy for a bit, but it ebbs away. So this became one of his insights that he's left us with. And just as he read in the Vita Christi that an idea is if you invite yourself into a gospel reading and chew on it, enter the story, you have greater nourishment again. His life changed from this point. And even though when he looked back later on, he realised that the early transition was all about fervour. Uh, he also knew that this was the beginning moment. Fervour and trying to out-saint the saints was what he was about early on, which is just like being a knight again, but doing it in a different way. But over time, he was transformed. Now, again, in the excerpts, there's a little bit... Um, the first of these two ex excerpts, which is from his reminiscences from the Penguin Classics, is when he thought back on these early days and thought, well, I was converted, I was transformed, but I was just, I was doing the same thing, but in a different way. He was resolved, as had been said, to do great penances with an eye at this point, not so much to making satisfaction for his sins as to ple being pleasing and agreeable to God. And so when he would make up his mind to do some penance that the saints did, his aim was to do the same and more besides. And in these thoughts he had all his consolation, not consider anything, considering anything within himself, nor knowing what humility was, or charity, or patience, or discernment in regulating and balancing these virtues. Rather, his whole purpose was to do these great exterior deeds because so the saints had done them for the glory of God without considering any other more individual circumstance. You can hear the zeal of the converted, can't you? His life has turned round and he's just going to, I'm just going to go for it now and I'm going to be like a, a knight again, but for God. And then he realised as time went by that that's not what it was about. And we start to get into one of the other great insights of Ignatius, which is about the discernment of spirits. Discernment of spirits is familiar to people. Is there kind of some, some nodding, some not nodding? Now, it's one of those funny things, discernment of spirits. If you're not familiar with it, people can have all sorts of associations with the idea of discernment of spirits. Sometimes people immediately go to little folk with pitchforks, spotting them. That's not what he meant. Discernment of spirits, it's in, in a sense from two core words. Discernment, discernere, the Latin, which is about sifting, sifting, discovering the texture of things, finding your way through it. And then the spirits, which are really almost to do with emotional states. So you're sifting your way through your emotional states. And this is really interesting. This is a kind of a, a, a monster of a knight in the 16th century who discovered that sifting your way through your emotional states was an extraordinarily powerful way of discovering how God works in your life. And what he discovered was, in this discernment of spirits, that if you sift your way through, as with the stories, your feelings, you can arrive at how God is speaking to you. 
So if you discover your mood lifts, if you discover a sense of joy or peace or whatever it happens to be, and you can feel the texture of that, you can learn how God speaks to you. If there's something that gives you that particular response, which you have a, which you have a sense of God speaking to you, you know that that's a fruitful thing for you to do. So if you know that in silence you discover this, that's a wonderful thing for you to do. If you know that through walking through the countryside, for example, whatever it happens to be, you discover this sense of well-being, of joy, you can feel the texture of it, you know that that's one of the ways in which God speaks to you. So you're discerning, you're sifting the texture and quality of your own experience and, and having a sense of what the emotional component is. It's very embodied. And the more you get to sift and know these things in your, in your own self, the more you learn about how, how God speaks to you. The discernment of spirits. To add a level of complication to that, though, there were these two words, desolation and consolation. Now, the easiest thing in the world would be to say, when you're feeling tip-top, then the discernment is, it's consolation, which is good. When you're feeling a bit rubbish, that's desolation, and that is bad. That's the, the first response to have. But then, of course... We know that life is more complicated than that. There are moments when we feel great because we're doing something we want to do rather than because it's good for us. There are moments when we feel terrible because God is teaching us something new and it cuts across what we're used to and so we're uncomfortable, so we don't like it. So we can feel really a bit rubbish but it's not bad flip side we can feel fabulous but it's not good how we discern our way through that is the work of Christian spirituality or one of them and it's to do with this bit by bit learning through feeling the texture of our experience and allowing God to speak to us that we start to discover what is um, fruitful and nourishing and is leading us closer to God and what is less fruitful and not nourishing and leading us further away. For Ignatius, I found this quite interesting when I first discovered this because I, I was to be a psychotherapist for a very long time and one of the key things about psychotherapy is you look at where something is coming from for information, and it's great information. For Ignatius, you look at where it's going. So it's the forward trajectory. So is this taking me closer to God? Or is this taking me further away? And that would be one of the hallmarks of how discernment happened for him. So you, you, you discern the spirits, you discover the, your own textures of your emotions and your feelings and your responses, and you gradually, gradually work out what is taking you closer to God and what is leading you further away from God. These are some of the insights that Ignatius left us with. 
a lot with an awful lot else, which I won't go into now. When he died, eventually, um, Ignatius had established the Society of Jesus, which, of course, became one of the great religious institutions of the world. Um, He left a a fairly substantial body of people, which, of course, became increasingly more substantial. And um, the rest is history in terms of the Society of Jesus. But he left these great insights, and they have come back again. And there's something about a new and increasing desire to discover God within and to discover our own response to God rather than pure through pure external rules or in another way. It's about this responding inside and learning to trust what's going on within us, that we can, with God's guidance, trust our emotional and physical worlds as a place of revealing God's presence in our lives.